Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. And for today, I am begging you just to bear with me as I sound a little bit uh, different. I am fighting this nasty coffin cold, so forgive me for my voice sounding a little bit off today. I know I say it all the time, but today's episode is like one we have never covered on Crimeaholics. I want to give a forewarning for anyone listening with kiddos around. We pride ourselves on not going too far into graphic details on our podcast, so typically it's fairly safe to listen to around kids without them catching on to anything too gruesome. But today's case is a lot more spicy than anything we've ever covered. Today's case has a whole lot of sex, drugs, bikers, and porn stars all mixed together in a deadly concoction of a sick fantasy gone wrong. So hold on tight, you're in for a wild one. On May 16, 2010, after not being able to get a hold of his cousin, Vincent Rella drives across town to the home of Dennis Abrahamson, who actually goes by the name of Scooter. So Scooter was a well-known, rough-around-the-edges biker dude. He ran with those who partied hard and lived life in the fast lane. He was 41 years old who owned a tattoo parlor in Newport Ritchie, Florida. Prior to arriving to Scooter's home, Vincent had been trying to get a hold of him for most of the day. It was unlike Scooter to miss a call from his cousin Vincent, and in the off chance that he did miss his call, he would always make a point to call him back as soon as he could. So when hours had passed and not a single word from Scooter came through, Vincent knew in his gut something was off. So he pulls into his home and begins knocking on the door, which nobody answered and it seemed as if nobody was home. He decided to check in the back to see if maybe Scooter was hanging out on his back patio in the hot tub. When he got back there, he found that the hot tub was turned on with the jets bubbling and the soft glow of lights through the water giving a romantic feel to the otherwise empty backyard. Vincent headed to the back door, which was unlocked, and let himself in. Walking into the living room, Vincent found his cousin face down, fully nude on a massage table. And for a split nanosecond, he thought he was asleep until his mind caught up with what his eyes were seeing. And it was very apparent that Scooter had been brutally murdered. Vincent called 911 immediately, and it didn't take long for police to arrive on the scene and begin their investigation. They found that Scooter's head had been badly beaten in, causing his skull to cave in. He had also suffered several stab wounds to his back. Nearby, in a clothes hamper, investigators found what appeared to be the murder weapons. There was two knives that appeared to have dried blood on them, as well as a sledgehammer that had blood and hair stuck to it. This was clearly a very violent attack, and it set investigators on edge knowing that this person or persons responsible are out wandering around Florida. 
Investigators are also sent out to begin the process of trying to collect any evidence or to find possible potential witnesses. Not far from Scooter's home is a local 7-Eleven, and on their security footage, they find Scooter making a purchase around 2 a.m. and then leaving. What they also realize is that while Scooter was inside making a purchase, there happened to be two police officers within the 7-Eleven as well. They end up speaking with them and get their first break in the case. Scooter was not alone that night. After making his purchase at the 7-Eleven, he went out and got on his motorcycle. Beside him was another couple on their motorcycle, and the three of them rode off into the direction of Scooter's home. Before authorities could track down who these two individuals were, they were actually contacted by them first. They had heard about the police cars and all of the crime scene tape and crime scene technicians going in and out of the house from Scooter's neighbors. Detectives had them come in for an interview, which is where they had told the couple that Scooter had been found deceased. The couple told investigators that when they left his home in the early morning hours of May 16th, that he was very much alive. They had also told investigators that they had not been hanging out with Scooter alone. Apparently that night before taking the party to his house, they had all been hanging out at a local strip club called the Brass Flamingo. While at the club, Scooter received a text message from a woman saying, quote, Hey, you up? I'm horny. Scooter and his friends left the club to head back to his house to continue partying. It was at this point that Scooter had pulled into the 7-Eleven to make the purchase before heading to his house. The couple stated that not long after arriving at his house, a skinny blonde arrived and it was her who had sent that text message to Scooter. She apparently was an adult film star who went by the name of Sunny Day and that her real name was Amanda, but they didn't know her last name. From what they told investigators, the party was more than just your normal gathering. It turned into a steamy, hot sex party where they all were being intimate in the hot tub. However, apparently Amanda started seeming bored with this sexual exchange and kept grabbing her phone, playing on it. Sometime around 5.30 a.m., the couple decided that they had enough and they were going to leave. Amanda claimed she was going to stay and that she wanted to give Scooter a massage. So who exactly is this blonde-haired porn star that was known as Sunny Day? Amanda Logue was her name, and she was from Leesburg, Georgia, which was a small town of less than 3,000 people. Growing up, she had always wanted to have the picture-perfect life with the kids playing in the yard and the husband that doted on her. But at the age of 17, she found out that she was pregnant and had to drop out of her senior year of high school. Amanda was doing the best she could caring for her child as a full-time mom, but life got a little bit rough when she was the age of 19 when her mother suddenly passed away. Every young lady needs their mother, especially when they are a new mom going through all of the learning process of being the caregiver for a teeny human being. So the loss of her mother was really hard for Amanda to handle and she began spiraling downward. 
Drugs were what she turned to to help numb the pain and the grief she was feeling without her mother. During this time, Amanda had a boyfriend and their relationship was a toxic one. Frequently, police were called to the home for various different domestic disputes. It was during one of these visits from police that she caught the eye of 30-year-old Lamont Logue. Lamont had taken the time to really sit down with Amanda and encourage her that she could do better and that she needed to get out of the life that she was living. It didn't take long before the pair started dating. Amanda really started to turn herself around, and she and Lamont got married less than a year after being together. Life was going really well for Amanda, and Lamont was so extremely supportive in all things she did. One evening, the two were talking, and he asked her what she had always dreamed of doing growing up, and she told him that she had always dreamed of being a model. Lamont was such a sweet and supportive husband that he went out and booked her a photo shoot. And to their surprise, her modeling career really took off just that easy. Jobs began flowing in so steadily that Amanda was able to quit her job and pursue modeling full time. A year after her career really began to blossom, tragedy struck for the Logue family. Lamont was in a bad car accident that left him unable to continue his career in law enforcement. And even with Amanda working full-time as a model, the bills were beginning to pile up. Lamont was in a state of being unable to work, so they decided together that if modeling in a more scandalous way would help generate more income, then she would do it. In a jailhouse interview that Amanda did on the show, Snapped, Killer Couples, she describes the money being so good that she just kind of got swept up by it. The nude photos slowly led into even more risky business that Amanda was doing online. She was beginning to pose for bondage-style things as well as stuff for foot fetishes. It didn't take long for Amanda to find herself being a part of the porn industry. She describes in that interview that just for a few hours of work, she was being paid several thousand dollars for girl-on-girl videos. She eventually ventured to participate in male-female porn, where she would be paid even better. Come early 2009, Amanda was appearing in more and more pornographic videos, being seen dressed as a cheerleader in pigtails, and even a video wearing a sexy, strappy, leather outfit in what appeared to be a gel sale. Little did she know her future would look strikingly similar. Slowly as the months trickled by, the pressure of her new career path was taking some strain on her marriage. They needed the help financially, but Lamont wasn't very fond of how she was making her money. And he expressed that she herself wasn't really happy anymore with it either. He states in an interview with Killer Couples that she had stated that she really didn't want to do it anymore. But with everything going on and with him being unable to work, they felt as if they didn't have any other choice than for her to continue in the adult film industry. In October of 2009, Amanda hopped on a plane and headed to New York for a week-long shoot where she was set to film with a man named Jason Andrews. As the pair began their scene, something was different for Amanda. 
She had never really enjoyed or even cared about the person she was working with on set, but her chemistry with Jason was steamy and it was real. She was really drawn in by Jason's British accent. After their first scene together, the two were glued to the hip and even began an off-camera affair. After the week shoot was over, Jason went back to Chicago and Amanda back to Georgia, but the two remained in constant contact. They were exchanging emails, texts, and lengthy phone calls, which all of which she kept hidden from her husband, Lamont. Finally, Lamont began receiving money for disability, and he was ready to leave the adult film industry in the dust. But around the same time, he realized that Amanda was wanting to film more and more videos with Jason. He finally told her she can quit making the videos and that it was time to focus on their family again. However, Amanda had other plans. On January 18th, 2010, Lamont showed up to his house after being out running errands to find that Amanda was loading her car with all of her belongings and she was not alone. Jason was with her and he and Lamont got into a verbal altercation where he threatened to kill Lamont. It was at this point that Lamont pulled a gun on Jason and a friend of Lamont had called the police. Jason was subsequently arrested and after his court appearance, the judge banned him from Lynn County. A few months later, Amanda takes her daughter to her father's house and she leaves her life in Georgia behind. Amanda and Jason moved down to the Tampa, Florida area to continue their careers as adult film stars. On Amanda's downtime to earn extra money, she would give exotic massages and use the cash to purchase drugs. The two were spiraling out of control, spending weeks on end binging drugs, having sex, and staying in hotels. As Jason became more comfortable in his relationship with Amanda, he slowly began letting down his walls and revealing some of his darkest fantasies. Jason had fantasized about raping someone as well as murdering people. Investigators knew after speaking to the couple that they needed to track down whoever this woman Amanda was. So they began looking into the text message that came to Scooter's phone while he was at the strip club. And it wasn't Amanda's phone that had sent it. It was Jason's. This took police by surprise because they hadn't heard of another man being at the home. So they began looking into Jason and who he was. What came as another shock was that he was actually just arrested for shoplifting in a nearby county. When authorities arrived at the jail to interview him, the jail staff informed them that Jason had actually been arrested with another person, a blonde-haired woman named Amanda. So that was a jackpot for authorities because the two people that they were interested in speaking with were both already in custody. So they first bring in Amanda to speak with her about if she saw Scooter that night, which she was very upfront. She stated that she did go over that evening to party. The other couple had left and she stayed behind to give him a massage and she says, quote, play with him. And that is when he fell asleep and she left just before or just after dawn. Investigators began pressing Amanda harder, asking if during the night she had communications with Jason while at Scooter's. She replied, um, probably. They tried to press harder about the nature of the conversation, but she was not giving up any details but the very minimum. 
Investigators were straight up with her and they said that they were investigating the murder of Scooter and she went absolutely silent other than asking for a lawyer. After her interview was over, they brought Jason in for questioning. During their interrogation, Jason's temperament ranged from very calm to very agitated. This obviously was huge flags for authorities, so they kind of just laid it out there straight to him that Scooter was dead, to which his replies afterwards were all denials of any involvement. Unfortunately, though, because there was not enough evidence yet, the two were not arrested in connection to Scooter's death, and the two posted bond and were released from jail. Despite not having enough evidence for an arrest, they were able to obtain a search warrant for Amanda's car. Inside the car, they recovered two BlackBerry cell phones that appeared to have had attempts made to clear any evidence on them. The batteries had been removed as well as the SIM cards that usually hold all of the data on the phone. They called the cell phone provider to obtain the data, and while they awaited for that information, they went to go question Amanda one more time to see if perhaps she wanted to admit to being there, but not the actual one to commit the murder. But when they arrived to the hotel that the two had been staying at, both Amanda and Jason had checked out of the hotel and were gone. Come to find out, Amanda had called her husband, Lamont, to come pick her up and take her back to Georgia. So Lamont drove the five hours to pick up his wife. On the car ride home, Amanda said in the snapped interview that she was terrified. She didn't tell him during that car ride because she was scared that he would make her get out on the interstate and she would be stranded. But when they got back to their Georgia home, she told him everything. She states that afterwards, he just held her. It wasn't long before investigators were knocking at the door, and Lamont answered and informed them that they would not be speaking without a lawyer. But investigators informed Lamont that they were hoping Amanda would speak to them not because they thought she was the one who actually committed the murder, but because they were trying to build a case against Jason for the murder of Scooter Abrahamson. At this point, Lamont felt it was in Amanda's best interest to go ahead and tell the truth to investigators, and so they sat down at their kitchen table with a tape recorder going, and she confessed. According to Amanda, she had been terrified to tell the truth the first time she spoke with them because she was scared of Jason. She claims it wasn't until after Jason brutally murdered Scooter that she realized how violent and scary of a person he was. She claimed that while she was inside Scooter's house, Jason had been waiting in her explorer outside while she was supposed to be giving the man a massage. She states that she did text him while inside, but the stress of the whole situation has caused her to forget what exactly they had talked about. Amanda said while in the middle of giving Scooter his massage, Jason snuck in and was holding a hammer and then began bashing him in the back of the head. She said that she was so absolutely terrified as she watched Jason commit the murder. After he was done bashing his head in, he grabbed knives and began stabbing him in the back to make sure he truly was dead. When he was finished, Amanda claims that he had threatened to kill her too and he grabbed her by the back of the head and drug her by her hair to see what he had done to Scooter and told her if she told anybody, she would be next. 
Amanda said that Jason purposely left all of the murder weapons in the clothes hamper. That way she would be blamed for his murder. She also claims that she purposely got herself arrested for shoplifting because she wanted so badly to get away from her murderous boyfriend. Investigators were beginning to really feel bad for Amanda, thinking she was just another victim of a psychopath. While headed back to Florida, investigators received a call from the individuals who had been working on retrieving the info from the phones, and information had been recovered. What they found painted a very, very different picture than what Amanda had painted. On the phones, they found evidence that Amanda knew what was about to go down. While in the home, Jason was texting her to keep her eyes peeled for available knives, to which she replied that she didn't see anything but described the drugs he had in the home. The conversation continued when she let Jason know that the couple who was also there was about to leave, and she wrote, quote, I'm effing excited to eff up someone. She also followed that text up with, quote, God damn, I want to F after we kill him. The following morning, investigators were back on Amanda's doorstep, and this time it was to arrest her for first-degree murder. While Amanda was being wheeled to jail, the search for Jason amplified. It took about a month and a half before he would be tracked down, but he was found in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he had been dating a new woman who decided to Google his name only to find out that her new man was actually wanted for murder. This new girlfriend would be the one to help lead authorities to where Jason was living, and he was quickly brought in by Chattanooga police. When Florida authorities arrived to speak with him, his story has suddenly changed since the last time they had spoke. The first surprise that investigators received was Jason dropping his British accent. He admitted he wasn't British at all, but he had, in fact, been born and raised in Kansas. He had also been previously married, which ended in a divorce. After his divorce, he moved to Chicago, where he completely reinvented himself to be this strapping British man who was a club DJ, but also performed in both gay and straight porn. He also admitted that it was him that had swung the hammer striking Scooter, and he admitted that he had done so more than a dozen times. He also stated that after he assumed he was dead, he went to the kitchen to grab some knives to make sure he was completely and 100% dead. It was during this interrogation that Jason began showing some sort of remorse for what he had done and had taken responsibility for the whole entire physical aspect of the murder. He also said that Amanda was the one who set up the whole thing and that she had been the one who had picked the victim and how it would be done. She was the one who scoped out the inside of the home to know what was there that could be used. According to Jason, Amanda had gotten high off the thrill of the kill, and immediately after they left the scene, they went back to the hotel and had sex. After the interrogation was over, Jason was extradited back to Florida. On July 16, 2010, both Amanda and Jason were indicted on first-degree murder, which is a capital offense in the state of Florida. On January 25, 2012, Jason Alexander pled guilty to first-degree murder and received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. 
Amanda's attorney encouraged her to take a plea deal, which she did, and in May of 2012, she pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. To this day, Amanda still claims that she was just as much of a victim as Scooter was. She is, however, sorry for her involvement in knowing Scooter because had she not, he would still be here today. Her husband, Lamon, eventually filed for divorce, and he has now since remarried. Amanda's daughter is also now living with her biological father. If you're not already a part of our Facebook group, make sure you join by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share pictures and information pertaining to all of the cases that we cover, as well as share all things true crime. Be sure to also follow us on both Instagram and TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast. Crimeaholics, that is all for this episode. Until next time, be aware and take care.